morning. I like that. I like that a lot. All right. Well, this morning, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you have those with you, um, turn uh, to the book of 1 John as we pick back up again where we left off last week. And this morning, we will be in 1 John, 1 John uh, chapter 2, and we'll be looking at two verses. We'll be looking at verse 1, and we'll be looking at verse 2 together. Verse 1 and verse 2 together this morning. Now, as you're turning there, i just kind of give you a little uh, piggyback off from last week. Last week, if you remember, we looked at test 1, and test 1 was phrased like this. It was, are you walking in the light? Are you walking in the light? Now, what I want to do is I would like to simplify and clarify something. Usually, I would actually have preached uh, that last one last week in two sermons, and I did it all in one. And what I want to do is to clarify that test really quickly if I can. But the test that we had before us is, are you walking in the light? Well, what I want to do to simplify that is this. The question is, do you have a new relationship with sin? Do you have a new relationship with sin? Uh, brothers and sisters, you probably have heard it said before, uh, I know that people who come up to me sometimes, and they want me to know that they've uh, come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, and sometimes they'll say things like, uh, I just want to let you know that I have a new relationship with Jesus. And that is a wonderful thing, right? That's a wonderful thing for anyone to say. But in the day and age in which we live, it, you almost need a follow-up second question. Can you guess what that is? If you have a new relationship with Jesus, I want to ask a second question. Now tell me about your new relationship with sin. You see, a new relationship with Jesus Christ should always lead to a new association with the world, the flesh, and the devil, the three age-old enemies of every one of your souls. I like to illustrate it like this. I I like simple things, all right? So let's say this. If I, uh, I tell you what, on, look at that. Bam, I have the power, okay? It's like this. Once in my life, before I knew Christ, before I would call Jesus my friend, I had a friend. And that friend's name was Sin. And I used to sit on my couch and I'd watch the game. And, and Sin and I were very good friends and he would come over. And he oftentimes stayed over there quite often. And I want to get you this picture in your head. It'd be like me having a relationship with sin, and I'm on the couch, and sin and I watching the game. I get my chip. I get my dip. Sin, I'm dipping in. Sin's dipping in. I'm looking over and going, <laughs> isn't this so good? He cheered for the same things I cheered for. I cheered for the same things he cheered for. There was a couple times there was a rat-a-tat on the window. Sin looked over at me and said, what is that rat-a-tat at the window? And I said, oh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that Jesus guy. He's always trying to get in. He's always wanting in. Sin says, get that guy out of here. You know if you let that guy in that he's going he's gonna to ruin this, this thing we got? That Jesus is such a killjoy. We're having a good time in here, aren't we? Yeah, we are. There was a time in my life, brothers and sisters, many of you have that time in your life when actually you became well acquainted with Jesus Christ. And with that well-acquainted nature of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, I'm standing before you this morning because Jesus Christ is my friend. He became my friend. Or better yet, he calls me friend. 
And so when Jesus comes in, he sits on the couch of life with me, and guess what? Wherever light is, guess what must flee last week? Darkness. Guess what? Satan. Sin was on the couch. He was my friend. And I said when I met Jesus Christ, because I love Jesus Christ, I said, sin, you gots to go. Get your stuff and get up out of here. And sin goes, oh, man, you have no idea what you're doing right now. Jesus Christ and I have a relationship. But I need you to know something right now, guys. I, I, I told sin to get lost because sin is no longer my friend. If I'm a friend of Jesus, I can no longer be a friend of sin. But you know what? Sin is a tricky little guy sometimes. I locked my front door. But sometimes because I'm not being very vigilant or for whatever reason, sometimes we forget to, to lock the back door, don't we? And guess what? Sometimes I'm sitting there with my chip in hand, dipping, and guess who I see beside of me sometimes? Sin. Look, what are, you, what are you doing here? You left the back door open. Well, get out. And I locked the door. And sometimes I'm sitting there and I'm doing my thing. And you know what sin sometimes do, does? Dipping my chip. And I go, what the world? And sin goes, I'm back. And I said, who let you in? He goes, came in from the chimney like Santa Claus. Sin does this. When we're not vigilant, sin will do this. But you know what happens when someone comes into your house that was never invited there? Do you know what we call that? A burglar. You know what you do when a burglar's in your house? You get to, okay, depending on who you are, you get to, yeah, 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 you get to going rat tat 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 all right, if you know what I mean, Second Amendment, hoorah. Okay, okay, Second Amendment. Or, or you call the police. Regardless, guess what sin was not? Sin was not your friend. He was not there by your invitation. Get lost. Amen? Jesus Christ is our friend. And brothers and sisters, we must be vigilant. Make no mistake, though we have a new relationship with Jesus, we will have a new relationship with sin. And that new relationship with sin is that he is not our friend. And while true perfection is the standard of standing before God, this is what it will take for us to stand before God. And while we understand that we in our flesh and mind cannot attain true perfection, today's text will be the found, the very pinnacle, listen, the top of God's redemptive plan for humanity. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Today's text, today's sermon, I get to look at you and say, I got some really good news, really good news today. And in these verses, these two, two verses, our joy and hope should be found, not sorrow, not fear, nor, nor trepidation. Remember, John himself has already written, as we've already looked at in 1 John 1, 4. He said this, if you remember, these things we write that your joy or our joy may be what? May be complete. My personal assessment to you this morning as a pastor standing in this pulpit with this text before us is that this word this morning will not disappoint. Amen? And let me prove it to you. Okay, let's stand up and let's read this word together if we can. Let's stand in reverence of God's word.
And it says in our text this morning, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Oh, if you don't know what I'm, if you don't know what I'm excited about right now, you will. So let us pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. And I pray, Lord God, that you will be in your word, that your word would not depart from us, that we would not depart from it. May it speak in a way that human mouth cannot speak. God, your power is in your word. Lord, I pray that this word would find its way deep in our hearts, minds, and souls, and it would take germination, and that we would not be the same because of it. Yes, even this morning. We love you. We thank you for your word. I pray, Lord God, that you would speak through it this morning. Our, for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may, may be seated this morning. Now, what I want you to understand is I, I forgot to make slides for each point. I'm going to start doing that. I got a constructive criticism. Uh, and that's, criticism isn't always bad. It was constructive. It was good. But I forgot to do it this week. But I still have your points. So if you want those, uh, if you're writing those down, here are the three points from these two verses that I wish for us to see this morning. Uh, point one is that we have in our text an issue with sin. And I want us to see that issue with sin. Point two the Christian's true source of hope and joy. We want to look at that this morning together. And then number three, a worldwide vision. A worldwide vision. So if, you have, uh, your, if you're taking notes, this is the beginning of point one. Point one is an issue or the issue of sin. And so as we look down at our text, we see that before us it says, My little children... John says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You may not sin. Now, already we have learned that John desires for the heart of each believer to be at war with sin, to be at war with it. Their relationship with it will change as their affections for Christ and being filled with his Holy Spirit will change it. And John is clear. John doesn't want anyone to sin. John is saying, in a sense, stop your sinning. He he desires for that to be the case. But first off, before I go any further, I would like to ask you a question. Well, maybe you ask me a question. Kyle, what is sin? Uh, We use sin a lot in the context of, like, generalities, and some churches and places don't use it at all anymore. But let us look at sin really quickly. Let me give you a definition of what sin is. Sin is any failure, any failure on our part to meet the moral standard of God, His holiness, you could even say, i.e., the Ten Commandments, in action, in attitude, and or in nature. Kyle, let's unpack those three. Okay, let's do that. Any failure to meet the moral standard of God in action. In other words, the action part is the doing part. 
It says do not murder. We actually killed someone, okay? It says do not steal. We definitely stole something. It's the actual doing things. Now, here's the thing. Every one of us in our lives, we have done something with our absolute hands in our doing. And that is considered, if it's against the moral standard of God, sin. But I'm going to be very generous. Is it okay if I be generous today? I'm going to be generous, and I'm going to pretend like none of you have any sin problem when it comes to doing. Yeah, you, you are, she already knows. She already knows. But I'm going to be generous, and I'm going to say, none of you have to worry about anything. You're good people. You, you do good things. Well, it's also a failure to meet the moral center of God in attitude. That is the thought thinking part. So it is actually uh, do not commit murder, and Jesus d- defines for us, yeah, but if you have hatred in your heart towards another, unable to forgive them, it says that it is the same as murder. So if you, if you look at a, a woman or a man to lust after them in your heart, you've committed what? He says you've committed idolatry because, idolatry because that is God's holy standard. So here's the question. It's not only what you do, it's what you think. It's the things that you think when you wish that nobody could see you in the dark. God sees it all. And he says, if you do this, it is sin. But you remember, I'm a generous guy today. None of you have to worry about ever doing anything because none of you have ever done anything wrong, right? You never sinned with your hands. I'm going to give you another one. I bet you all look like really, really good people. You've never sinned with your minds either, I don't believe. And even if we have not sinned with our hands, even if we have not sinned with our minds, brothers and sisters, we still have a massive problem. We have sinned against God in our nature, which means that we were all of us in this room born radically depraved, born in sin. Did my mother conceive me? Adam and Eve, their seed after them was a broken seed, riddled, riddled by the issue of sin against God. Sin is any failure to meet the moral standard of God in action, attitude, and nature even if we've done nothing even if we've thought something nothing brothers and sisters we still were born in it sin comes us there's actually uh, maybe you've heard this before how many of you know the literal the literal word for sin the real literal word for sin is something that we see in old english language it literally means to miss the mark and literally what it meant for in that time frame is people would go up, I think of Robin Hood, taking his bow and shooting his arrow, shooting his shot, as we say now in our day and age, shooting that shot, boom, going to shoot that thing, going to hit, we're going to aim for that arrow. And every arrow that we send out as human beings in the flesh does this. Sin! Oh, man. In the tournament, man. Miss! And I want to tell you something about when we send out arrows. We are so horrible that our arrows don't even get probably this close. Our arrows end up in the rope. All right? Our arrows end up in our children running behind the target. We send our arrows, and it is always for us sin, unable to make the mark. Now, John does not want any child of God sealed with the Holy Spirit to make a practice of sinning. That you're going to see later. That's in 3.9. We're going to look at that. That's the issue. He doesn't want you to sin as to get good at it. However, look at our text. It says if, and if in our text here, in our text could read if and when we sin. And I want you to know something. This is huge. 
Why? Because in this verse, John is lifting this burden of sinless perfectionism from your sole ability to carry it out in your flesh, which we already know is impossible with man. Meaning, while the true believer will hate sin, while he will war with sin, have a new relationship with it, and seek to be holy as God is holy, that's sanctification, he by no means will be completely without sin this side of heaven as to be perfect in the flesh. And I put here in my notes, transition. Here's the statement. This reality is what makes our next point so incredibly powerful and so incredibly amazing. Our next point is this. Point two, the Christian's true source of hope and joy are found in this text. The first thing in which I wish to point out from this text this morning is the word we. If you look at there, it says we. What does it say? My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if someone, anyone does sin, we, we, we have an advocate with the Father. Who are the we? Well, the we is referring to, in this verse, what we've already seen. The, in context, brothers, just listen to me. Context is so important when you're reading your Bibles. Do not get caught up in that trap of taking a Bible verse and whatever the culture has applied to it, taking it and running with it. You have to read the Bible in its context. Okay? And the context from which we see the we, John has already established when he said in the very beginning of our text, my little children. We refers to my little children. Again, John here is dealing with those in the church. Those who by all accounts already confess and follow Jesus Christ as Lord. John establishes that we who are in Christ have a great cause for joy. For when, not merely if, but when, we sin as children of light, something is given to us that those who sin in darkness do not have. And brothers and sisters, listen to me. Yes, yes, there is a difference between those who sin in the light and those who sin in darkness. Do you know what the difference is? Right in front of you, the text says, we have an advocate. We have an advocate. The word advocate comes from that Greek word paraclete. Or parakletos. It means, and it's a very special word. Brothers and sisters, it's actually one of my favorite words, Greek-wise, in Scripture. It means one who comes alongside of. It means an intercessor. It means an advisor or helper. Uh, in the Scripture, a paraclete, uh, uh, something that has been attached to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has been called a paraclete, one who comes alongside of to comfort, comfort and to help. In the New Testament times, it is also the word most often used of an attorney or a lawyer and carries the meaning, one who pleads our case. How many of you like those courtroom dramas? You know what I'm talking about? We have entire, we have entire uh, stations or TV channels dedicated to the court system. We have TV shows like Judge Judy back in the day. People's Court, even before her. And we had a couple other ones I've noticed on television. We have dramas like Boston Legal, Law in Order, 
the practice, bull, and we're from North Carolina. We can't forget old Matlock, all right? Growing up, I remember watching the O.J. Simpson trial for like a week as a child. Most recently, some of you remember watching President Trump and his impeachment trial. Some of us were glued to our televisions to see what was going to happen in regards to this. If you live in my house, if you live in my house, you do not have a life on Friday night. You don't. Because my wife, Misty, will demand that you watch Dateline in 2020. I, I, no matter what plans I have, I'm gonna, I want to do something else. We're watching Dateline. Sit down. And sometimes she gets really crazy, and she says, and we're going to watch 2020 Extra, too. Yeah, I know. Well, here in verse, verses 1 through 2, John is taking his reader to a cosmic courtroom drama that makes all our earthly trials look like child's play in comparison. In this courtroom, God the Father is judge. Yes, God is judge. If we look back in Psalm 96, 13, before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. God, in this courtroom drama, this scene, is judge. Satan, in this courtroom drama, is the accuser. He is what we would know as a prosecutor. He comes to stand to argue the case against each one of us. All of mankind, as we've already established, born in sin, is on trial due to their sins against God. Then, there is Jesus Christ, our advocate, the defense attorney, before the judge We who are in Christ have an advocate before the judge. We who are in Christ have an advocate. And he's ever ready to plead his people's case. Now let me set the stage even further if that wasn't already clear enough. How terrifying is it that the judge is God? And how terrifying is the judge who is God, the one who wrote the laws? He knows them intimately, for he wrote them with his own finger. And not only this, however, the judge in our case has always been just in all his judgments. As a perfect judge, he has never allowed for lawbreakers to go free, which means he's a good judge. He's good. This should leave us none too comfortable. And this judge, meaning God, is also a righteous judge, which means he's perfect in all his ways and perfection in his standard of innocence and or guilt. He judges well. Which means you would never want to plead your own case before this judge. We who are unrighteous and full of sin in the flesh... You know, when you, when, when you have a court case, oftentimes the lawyer will get with its, its client and say, hey, look, uh, you need to look a little presentable when you go before the court. You don't want to wear a T-shirt. You don't want to be slouchy. You want to put on a suit. You want to comb your hair. You want to brush your teeth. You're going to want to put on some deodorants, right? 
You're going before the, the judge. You want to look presentable. In this courtroom, brothers and sisters, I don't care how good you try to make yourself look, you try to get presentable before the judge, and the judge who is absolutely the standard of all perfection looks at you every time and says, messy, sloppy. Nice try with your hair, though. Sloppy. If you and I were to plead our own case, we all of us would be unjustified. We would have nothing to stand on or point to that could ever plead our innocence. Those without Christ are those whose who's only advocate, they're only, uh, the only person who stands before the God for themselves is themselves, arguing their own case. But we who are in Christ, we have an advocate. And by the way, our advocate, he himself, if you look in our text, it says that our advocate is righteous standard of God and our advocate I need you to know something our advocate has never lost a case hallelujah is right he's got a wonderful track record so here's the scene so here we stand before the judge the indictment is clear God knows the record of our sins perfectly and Satan, our enemy, our adversary, our persecutor, continually pleads against us to God in order to see us brought to nothing and to swift, swift judgment. And God has every right, brothers and sisters, to destroy us for violating his holy laws. So here we are, hopeless and helpless. And we turn to Christ, the righteous, as our advocate. However... You need to know something. Jesus not only pleads our case before the Father as if this was not already an amazing thing. Look what else Christ does in our text. He's not only the lawyer, the advocate, and he doesn't only do, do this on our behalf as if it wasn't enough. Look, what he does next, what he becomes for us next is possibly the most amazing thing in all of human history. The verse for us, verse 2 says that he is not only our advocate, he is our propitiation. Sins. Propitiation, big word. Comes from the Greek, which means an offering to appease, to satisfy an angry or offended party. This word is only used twice in 1 John. Once we see here, we'll see the other one in 4.10. But both times of Christ, both of these times means Christ's atoning blood that appeases God's wrath on all sins. Listen, by the sacrifice of himself, Jesus Christ provided the ultimate propitiation for those in whom he stands as advocate. Let me tell you what this means. Not only does Jesus plead our case as the only righteous one before the righteous Father, Jesus Christ goes a step further and he says, do they have, do they have fines to pay? They do? I'm going to pay them. I'm going to pay them. Listen, you may have heard it said before, you need to be saved. We say that a lot in, in, in the Bible Belt and in a uh, southern church culture. Hey, brother, you need to get saved. Or we say, I got saved last weekend, which is great news. 
But there is a second question I would ask, and it goes like this. Saved from what? You've been saved, yes. Saved from what? Saved from a meaningless life? Saved from a life of unhappiness? Saved from a life of boredom? Saved from going to hell? Have you ever stopped to think that maybe you need to be saved because you need to be saved from God himself? Oh, I'm sorry. That don't play too well anymore, does it? God is a holy and just God. He's not, I, do not, I will not follow a God that I can even beat up in the hallway. He is big. He is good. For he is righteous and just, and his judgment and his wrath is sure. And here we see that Jesus is not just our advocate. He also becomes our very debt payer. Listen, we are all guilty before a holy God. And the judge who sees all and has only ever been just in his judgments sets forth the standard and or the penalty to appease his wrath. Yes, his relenting anger. And those two things are these. Death. Death and or perfection. Death and or perfection. And Jesus steps in as the only righteous, the only perfect one, and he pays our fines. He takes upon himself our sins and he takes the blow. That's the death. And what we are left with is his righteousness. Plead the case. Make the case. What? They they have sins? I take their sins. What? Death? I'll die in their place. What will you give them? And I will give them my righteousness. They stand before the Father Judge, and he, 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 he calls them. They're not, they're not righteous. He, he calls them righteous as if they are righteous because of Christ. Christ takes our sin, and he goes to the cross, and he propitiates against the relenting wrath of Almighty God on our behalf. But before you get all upset with this picture of God who is all mean and like a bully with a magnifying glass getting chuckles, getting the little ants I used to do as a kid. (laughs) I was an evil, evil kid with the ants, right, with the magnifying glass. Before we get this picture that this is God. Yes, sadistic, right? Just listening to him. Before, before, before we get this idea that this is God that he's speaking of, Kyle, this morning from the pulpit, I want to remind you something of this God who is the judge of the universe, who will judge rightly, who is holy, Shover, judge the world in his wrath. Listen to me. Listen to text of scripture. Jesus stands in the gap takes all of the wrath of God on our behalf. But I want you to understand where that wrath comes from. It comes from this God. 1 John 4.10 And this is love. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
And lastly, Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, listen, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one in this room may boast. Amen? Yes, amen. I need you to understand a couple things about Christ, God, and the nature of man. There was once a little boy. This little boy went walking in the woods. He was kind of like a a nature walk, right? He's going for a nature walk. He goes, and he comes up into this thicket, and he notices this little, little tiny sheep and this lamb. And it's just sitting there all by itself, and it's going, you know, doing lamby things. And he thinks to himself, he thinks to himself, whoa, that is the cutest little thing I've ever in my life seen. I want to pinch its face right off. We say down south, right? It's cute when you want to pinch its face off. He gets, he, gets down on the, he gets in the ground with this little lamb. He's sitting there, he's petting this lamb. This lamb is sniffing on his cheek. It's giving him a little lick, lick, lick. And he's like, oh, my goodness, it's so cute. I just want to take it home and love it. He has his moment with the lamb. He puts down the lamb. And he begins to continue to walk on his, on his journey. As he begins to walk, he also sees now uh, uh, the thicket rattling. And, and it's kind of doing this number right here in the bushes. He's like, what in the world is that? Maybe another lamb. Maybe the mama lamb. You, right? But this time he looks into the thicket, notices something that's staring back at him. It's two big giant red eyes. And as he looks into the thicket, he sees a lion, and this lion has blood dripping from its teeth. And by the way, this lion has not eaten in over a month. This lion is hungry. And do you know what the little boy is made out of? Meat. Lions like meat. And just as the lion sees the little boy in the, in, in the, uh, in the woods, this little boy, it jumps out of the, the thicket, he comes running at the young man, full speed ahead, opens his mouth, shows his teeth, has every intent to eat this child, and right as he's getting ready to lose his life, nowhere to go, the lion stops right in front of him, closes his mouth, and begins to purr like a kitten. And starts to rub up against the young man's thigh. And the little boy is sitting there and he's petting the lion. Oh my gosh. Now my question to you, every one of you in this room, in this moment, with this lion and with this lamb, how many, which one do you think the little boy appreciates more in this moment? How many of you would say the lamb? Okay, how many of you would say the lion? Why? Because the lion didn't eat him. I love the lamb. The lamb is a beautiful thing, but the lion, the lion had every course in his bones and his nature to eat me alive, and he didn't. I love the lion. I need you to know something about the lion and the lamb illustration. God, better, our Jesus, he is both the lion and the lamb. He is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. He is the perfect sacrifice. He came like a lamb. 
He went to the cross. He shed his blood on our behalf. And you remember he said not an evil or harsh thing from his mouth. He was a lamb. But you need to know something about this Jesus. He is coming back again. And he is coming back like a warrior. And he will judge the world in righteousness. He is coming to be a lion. And what you want to know is you want to know what you're going to meet. I hear it said once before, a well-meaning older uh, woman once said, I can't wait for Jesus to come home and come and get us. When he comes back, I'm just going to run up to him and just hug him. You don't want to hug what's coming back. He came once as a lamb. He's coming back as a lion. You don't want to hug him. You know what he's coming to do. But Jesus Christ at that cross, that cross is a semblance. It's a, it's a remembrance of the lamb who took away the sins of the world. But you need to understand why that lamb went to that cross. Because the almighty wrath of a holy God beat that lamb on a cross. Romans 3, 22 through 23 says, for, this, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, oh, what a word, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. By his blood. Brothers and sisters, listen, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he paid the check, or he wrote the check. And three days later, when he rose from the grave, guess what? The check cleared. Amen is true. Which leads me to our final and last point. A worldwide vision. A worldwide vision. Now this morning, I am not going to, I'm not going to theologically unpack this section of our text. I'm not going to do it. Meaning as to uncover the meaning of the words whole world. I want to give you full disclosure. I, when I look at the word whole world in this text, I come more from a reformed soteriology or theology. My understanding of that comes from Augustine and Luther and Luther to Calvin and Calvin goes on to Edwards and Edwards to Spurgeon. That is the vein in which I run when I'm trying to understand the words whole world here. Some of you else in this room may not hold to that theological premise and that is okay. I'm fine with that. And I'm going to tell you why. Because truth be told, we as brothers and sisters in Christ should be able to dialogue well with our Bibles open as to understand and unpack the Word of God together. Isn't that a good thing? So let's do that in time. What does the whole world make reference to here is something that we can all discuss. But I want you to understand something. Regardless of the debate, regardless of where you sit on this understanding of whole world, there is something that I believe, whether you're Reformed or non-Reformed, in your view of things, should hold hands on, and we can do that this morning very well. So I'm going to point us to that. Is that okay? That's what I want to point us to this morning. There is a shared reality, and this is it, that the message of the gospel has a worldwide focus. If you look at our text, it says... The Apostle Paul, I mean, excuse me, not Apostle Paul, John says, not ours only. 
not ours only. Remember, John starts this section with my little children, and our context is unmistakably clear. John is writing his epistle to believers, and for John, for himself, a Jewish believer. But John here says, Jesus is not just our advocate, not just ours, believers, not just us, Jews, not just our advocate. Jesus is not just just only our propitiation. Jesus is an advocate, and he has become the propitiation for the whole world, meaning not only for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. And this, too, is incredibly good news because I'm looking in this morning in this sanctuary, and I'm not seeing a whole lot of Judaism. Yes, I am a beneficiary, and you are a beneficiary of the promises made to his people Israel. God has said, we're going to make, we're going to make the tent wider. A worldwide vision for this message. This is the context, I believe, of the entire passage. Listen, how much humility does this produce in you? Do you Gentiles, like myself this morning, understand the grace and the mercy in this reality? Those of us without the law, those of us without the traditions, those with us without the promises, without the temple, so to speak, Jesus has become for us, yes, we as well, an advocate and a propitiation to that this Gentile says, amen. He is an advocate to the Bushmen in Africa. He is an advocate to the Indonesian brother and sister. He is an an advocate and a propitiation for the tribesmen in Brazil, the businessman in Russia, a college student, or the retiree in North Carolina. You get the picture? This message is a worldwide message. And Revelation 5, 9 says, And they sang a new song. You know, in order to sing a new song, you know you got to stop singing the old one, right? You ever, you ever knew that? You know, me and Sin on the couch, we sang a song. Jesus came in and sang a new one. Sin didn't like my new genre of music, right? It says here, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, meaning of Christ, and to open the seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed. Ransom means to be bought back. He purchased us, people for God, from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And we as Americans get to say amen to this. I don't know if you remember that Christianity did not run through America. It, didn't, it wasn't invented by the American Constitution, okay? We are beneficiaries of being a part of God's worldwide vision for his gospel. Which brings me to my conclusion. We, all of us, are with sin and have been enemies of God. We're enemies of God apart from Christ because this is our natural disposition in birth. We, all of us, will stand in judgment of a holy God, his complete Perfection is before us. We all of us are without hope if we were to plead our own case. We have nothing in our hands to bring. Simply to the cross, we, the old song goes. We who believe in and trust in Christ, we have an advocate who has never lost a case. We who believe and trust in Christ have our penalty paid at the cross. The check is written. Three days later, check cleared. 
We who can profess this reality are to tell others in humility and in gratitude for our message is a worldwide message of hope for the hopeless and help for the helpless. This morning's courtroom drama, this scene from our text is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this pastor's prayer and hope is that all you who hear can claim Jesus as your own advocate, that he is your propitiation in this life, and that we, because of that, will join together as his people in togetherness, quanania, fellowship, in making his name known to the nations. Two reasons. Because there are people who are dying and lost apart from a saving work of Jesus Christ. And I promise you that's actually secondary to the first one. And the first one is because God deserves their worship. Why do we go to Brazil? Why do we go to Africa? Why do we go to Russia? Why do we go across the street? Because God deserves every nation's worship. He deserves it. And you and I have been indebted with the gospel of grace. You were saved and ransomed for this reality. This is the purpose for which you were all made. And could it be, possibly, that if we find ourselves bored in Christianity, bored, bored, it's because we have not begun to live this. There's a lot of words that can be connected to Christianity. Scary, sorrowful, exhilarating, Joy-filled, dangerous. The word bored is not a word that I would associate with Christianity, at least for not those who've been purchased and have an understanding of what we were saved unto. May we get a, gr- a glimpse of that knowledge of what we were made for and the purpose for which we were saved. Have you been saved? Amen. Saved from what? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. I love you and I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord God, that you and your brilliance can help us to unpack and to see so many things in two verses. Lord, I pray that every man, woman, and child in this room would have you as their advocate. To have you plead our case before the judge, Lord God, that you, Christ Jesus, would stand as our propitiation. For you're the only one who could actually pay it anyway. We have no hope apart from you, God. We have no hope apart from you, Christ. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for paying the price. And I pray, God, before we close, that you would help every single one of us here in this room to shake under the weight of what you've done for us, that we would not be the same, that it would affect us daily. And, Lord God, that it would drive us to mission for your glory for the nation's good, and yes, God, for our joy. Pray these things in your name, Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.